Welcome to episode 1405 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters and Fangraphs, I guess. I haven't done one of these in a while. I'm Nate Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I've missed you, pal. Yeah, time to talk. How was your all-star experience? Well, my actual all-star experience took place on my couch at home, so not yeah. so dissimilar from past all-star experiences, but the Futures game was great fun. Mm-hmm. I survived both getting to and returning from Cleveland, Yep, which is not an easy place to get to. <laughs> From, from Seattle. Se- from Seattle, yeah. anyway. Although several of our more westerly uh, compatriots had uh, similarly tricky travel. Uh, but it was it was nice. I had never been to Cleveland. It's a good little Midwest city. Did you leave before the Derby, too? You, yeah. Did you, yeah. Yeah, I left before the Derby, but my flight had live ESPN. So I actually got to watch most of the Derby, despite mm. not being there. Um, but watching the Derby, you know, this was like the second year in a row where I was like, the derby's pretty great maybe i want to like be at the derby right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> right so that was uh that was a fun surprise feeling but yeah Cle- cleveland's cool i think we should be nicer to midwestern cities i think we're kind of snobby about them on the oh, coast definitely. yes like what like people talk about them like they're not sophisticated as if there's not panera in seattle or something uh, i don't get it <laughs> All, every city is the same now. They're all the same. We have the same restaurants everywhere. Like, <laughs> I've had that argument <laughs> with Sam on this podcast, I think, years ago, where he was arguing that you couldn't get good food of a certain type in certain cities. And I was saying, it's 2019 or 2016 or whatever it was at the time. You can get good food everywhere for the most part. Like, But I don't know. We subsequently heard from... Lots of people. People had opinions about that, as they will about cuisine. And I do understand that there are cities where maybe you can't get every type of ethnic cuisine. And maybe certain cities have big immigrant communities from certain places in the world. And so it's easier to get good food of that kind. But I don't know. In general, I think that regionalism is a little bit overblown. And you can eat well everywhere. Yes, I think you can eat well. I don't think you can eat everything well everywhere, but I think, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that there is a size of city, you know, under which it is hard to uh, get something maybe fancy, but we should all just enjoy a good diner and be fine with it, I think. <laughs> That's my philosophy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you can get good diner everywhere because yes. diners all mostly the same and yeah. it's wonderful wherever you go. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> So I guess we should talk about baseball. We're mostly going to do emails here. I I don't know what to do for banter because it seems like the thing that we would talk about is like trade deadline stuff, which Sam and I sort of talked about last week and the standings, and we might talk about that more in the future. And I know you mentioned in your chat that you are writing something on that topic for next week potentially, so don't want to steal your thunder there. 
I just talked to Bauman on the Ringer MLB show about the Giants, and you were just chatting in your chat about the Giants. I yeah. think they're they're kind of the team everyone's like, what's going on with that team right now? Because they're suddenly winning a lot and have been really good for six weeks or so, and that throws a wrench into the whole trade deadline picture because they were like the one team that you could count on to trade and also have appealing players to trade, and now they're probably still a team that should trade, but they're like only three three games out of a playoff spot as we speak and sort of hard for yeah. a decision maker to say well I'm going to take the long view and I know this team probably isn't great so I'm going to equip it for the future by trading off pieces now even though I am technically within striking distance and depending on how their next couple of weeks go that's the sort of thing I, I guess fans are smart and they kind of know the lay of the land and they're not totally delusional. I guess they're <laughs> they're kind of delusional sometimes, but <laughs> I think they know the situation the Giants are in and that the Giants could afford to restock their system and yes. get young guys and trade some of these impending free agents. But on the other hand, if they keep winning for another week or two and they are that close to a playoff spot, some percentage of your fan base will probably be annoyed that you didn't go for it. Yeah, I think that that is true. I'm going to say a couple of things about a couple of different states of fandom, and I'm going to offend a lot of people who I just maybe made like me by talking about how we should be nice to people who don't live in the places <laughs> we live. I think that like they are not actually a, a very good team, is my opinion of the San Francisco Giants. They have been winning a lot, as you said, but I do not think that they're actually a good team. And Eric and Kylie kind of have been doing some updates to our prospect rankings and our and also our, our farm system rankings just generally ahead of the deadline. And the Giants did improve uh, in the last little bit, both through the draft and uh, just in the estimation of some of the guys that they have. But they went from like having the 27th farm system in baseball to the 22nd farm system in baseball, at least by Eric and Kylie's estimation. Uh, and they're, you know, pretty good at this. So I think that they will likely take the long view. If you're a Giants fan, what, I will not say what could you possibly complain about because my life is pretty great and I complain <laughs> about all sorts of stuff. So I should definitely not cast stones because I live in a glass house. Your baseball but life has not been as great. That's true. And their baseball life has been terrific. Yes. So wouldn't you rather, wouldn't you rather sit there and say, you know, we got some, we have a couple of prospects who are exciting who, who we would like some more uh, because our system is not very good. And we have all of the guys who folks want to trade for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, so let's go get them. I imagine that the conversation within the Giants front office, and I say this without any inside information, would probably go something like this, which is that if you were to put the shoe on the other foot and say, hey, we're very close to a playoff spot and we'd like to go on a little run here, we have a bunch of holes. What can we trade from our farm system to go get some replacement pieces that would be better? Then the answer becomes very quickly, not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that that probably will end up sort of determining their strategy in a way that'll be pretty sensical. But Giants fans, it'll be okay because you've won a bunch of World Series very recently. Uh, you live in a beautiful place. And I'm sure that your team will be much better in terms of its setup for the future after the deadline than it is right now. So that seems pretty great. Yeah, it's sort of seductive, their success recently, mm -hmm. because it's not just that they've been winning, but they've also been playing well. They've yeah, been they have been. Outscoring everyone for yeah. six weeks or so, and so that's a little more real, but you look yes. at the players who are driving this and, and how bad they were for the first two months, and granted, they've made some personnel changes, but 
just I look at the roster and it, it doesn't look great. And I just, the worst thing that you could do probably is to like win a few games for the next couple of weeks and be close enough that they're worried about backlash and they don't end up trading the bullpen parts that they have. They've got a really good bullpen this year and yes. a lot of those players are on expiring or soon to expire contracts and you could get quite a haul for them plus Bumgarner plus others and that could really kickstart your rebuild which is probably overdue at this point and you don't change your whole regime and hire Farhan Zaidi to do nothing and right. to keep all the guys that the previous regime put in place. You kind of have him because you figure he's going to get you to your next really good team and thus far he hasn't been very active in that area and he's probably been banking on this month being the time that is going to be really pivotal for this franchise so I will be very curious to see because if they I don't know if they go 10 and 3 or something in the next couple weeks and suddenly they're like in a wild card spot then it becomes very difficult just from a PR perspective to actually run up the white flag even if in the long run you look at the numbers and you look at the true talent and you think this is going to be beneficial there are a certain number of fans who are just going to look at the standings and say why are we not adding why are we subtracting so yeah that's something you sort of have to steal yourself against as a front office person yeah and i you know I get that. I'm looking at our, our very nice, fancy new roster resource depth charts at Fangraphs. I'm yes. looking at the, the Giants uh, roster resource depth chart now at Fangraphs.com. And, you know, just a lot of older guys yeah. <laughs> on this team. This is laid out in such a nice way. So you're like, am I getting excited about a team where one of the better hitters they have is 2019 Pablo Sandoval, who, granted, hitting better than I expected Pablo Sandoval yes. in 2018, but still... Paulo Sandoval, you know, and then you you scroll down the page and you you think about the rankings of their prospects and their their highest ranked prospect is Joey Bart at twenty one. Joey Bart's an exciting prospect. Joey Bart's exciting, but that's that's the best he got on an overall basis. And then you have to go down to like seventy six to get something close uh, mm-hmm. in the top one hundred. So I think that it's the sort of thing where. It has been overdue, and they've sort of bought some playoff appearances on borrowed time in a way. Mm -hmm. Maybe should have started thinking about rebuilding earlier. And so, uh, you know, I think that it'll be painful for a minute. And when it is, that those fans should just go back and watch, uh, you know, World Series tape. Very (laughs) recent World Series tape. The hair hasn't changed very much. (laughs) Most of the hair is the same. Yeah. Brandon Crawford's hair is still greasy. (laughs) And I'm not saying that you have to make this like very cold clinical decision and say like we're in contention for a playoff spot right now, but if we give up on this playoff spot, then we could get ourselves like two expected playoff berths in five years or something. Like if you've got a shot right now, then you should probably take that shot and and maybe don't do something that's going to really impair you in the future but but don't you know give up if there's a realistic shot but the giants just don't seem that good that there is a no. realistic shot i think their playoff odds are like 2% right yeah. now at fangraphs and that's all wild card odds and right. they're like 
five wildcard teams ahead of them. And even though they're not great, it's still a lot of teams to leapfrog. So yeah, I think you have to be somewhat philosophical about it. And there are times when a team will seem to start the rebuild too soon but usually it's too late i guess like the too soon that i can think of like when the braves after 2014 when they decided to pull the plug and start over they were still a pretty good team they finished poorly but they were really good in 2013 they still had a lot of talent and it seemed like they just decided well we're gonna lose hayward and so we'll get rid of hayward and we'll trade all these other guys and granted the braves are good again so it kind of worked but i don't know was there more in that roster that they could have squeezed out of it before they decided to start over but but usually it's the opposite usually it's let's give it one more run with these guys and then suddenly they're not worth that much and when you do get around to trading them you don't get very much back or they leave via free agency and that's sort of the boat that the Giants are in right now, or or it would be if they don't do anything. So one would have to think that they probably still will. Well, and I don't I don't think that the only two modes that a team can operate in are, you know, full teardown sort of rebuild and then being the Dodgers, right? It's not like mm-hmm. the only option those are the only options available to you. And I do think that there are teams that successfully sort of understand what their window is and maybe push in a little bit early because they're overachieving or or what have you but i think that the giants don't fall into that camp and if you're if you're the giants and what you want to do is say look we're not interested in a hard rebuild we want to continue to contend for a long time that's a strategy decision that you make in the off season when you could have, you know, been someone who was been a team that was like gonna sign free agents before February, for instance, right? Like you had they had that option available to them and they decided not to really do that. So I think that you can operate in a mode that is not just uh, World Series or bust, but you probably don't make that decision on July 16th with a roster that looks like this. So yeah, right. Well, contenders can pick up Edwin Jackson if they want Edwin Jackson because he was designated for assignment by the Blue Jays. And I wonder whether this is finally going to be the end of the line for Jackson because he did not pitch well with the Blue Jays. He did not make a strong argument in favor of continued employment at the major league level. He pitched in eight games, five starts, 28 and a third innings, 11.12 ERA. Just barely a sub nine FIP. Things did not go well for Edwin Jackson. So, (laughs) on the one hand, I'm kind of happy that there's a chance that he could catch on with another team and and add a fifteenth notch to his belt. I guess, I mean, even if he were to be picked up by another team, it's basically like even odds at this point that it would even be a new team because he's played for almost half of them. But I just don't know. I mean, I'm sure he could get a minor league deal somewhere if he wanted to, but might be tough at 35 and coming off of that performance to add another team to his record. Well, and the bad news for him is that several of the teams that would make sense from adding, you know, an additional uh, team to the to the list, the the bad ones are teams he has already played for in some capacity, yes. right? So he, you know, going to Miami doesn't do anything for him. Being an Oriole we shouldn't subject Edwin Jackson to that again. That just feels mean. <laughs> you know, Detroit is off the table. Obviously, he just got let go by Toronto. The White Sox are off the table, you know, and like then you have good teams, right? So the Rays are not going to be interested in him, and he's already played for them. Let's see. He could go 
to the Reds, but I don't think the Reds are going to concede quite like that because they should yeah. be much better than their record suggests. So they might end up being like legitimate yeah, buyers. Reds have had good pitching. Yeah, right. Yeah, they have no need there. Don't go to Colorado, Edwin. That seems like a very <laughs> bad idea. You've already been a Mariner, right? No, he had. Oh, he should. He should be a Mariner. Oh, We've solved right. that problem. Yeah, he'd fit really well. He's. Yeah. yeah. It's almost incomprehensible that he hasn't been a Mariner. <laughs> Did he do minor league time with them? Or does he, he just he feel like he was a Mariner? <laughs> he feels like he should have been a Mariner at some point. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Um yeah, no, I guess he never I guess he never did. So yeah. that's that's we the check answer. That box off. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what it is. We gotta call up Jerry. I got a <laughs> I got a idea for you, sir. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on uniform advertising, patches on jerseys, which seems to be coming in the next few years? I I mean, I will. I don't love it. (laughs) I don't know that fighting it is going to do much good Um, for the international series that they've done this year. They've had decals on the batting helmets, and I find it terrible and quite distracting. I just they're very rarely. There are so few shots when you're on, when you're watching a game on television. There are so few moments where the camera is not already on an ad, mm-hmm. and so I just don't think it's necessary. But I'm basically asking people to make less money, uh-huh. so that seems like you know my aesthetic preference is probably not going to <laughs> rule the day here. Yeah, but I wish it would. And I guess I'm resigned to it just because, as you said, you're seeing ads everywhere all the time. So what's one more way to see an ad is also another way to think about it. I guess it could be like the breaking point, like this is the one thing that doesn't have ads. And so it's even worse that this will have ads. Or you could just think, well, there are ads everywhere already. So why even draw a distinction? Why make a fuss about one more place to have our, our purchasing power solicited? But see, I do think that it's, I mean, I don't think that I'm actually like arguing against you here because I don't think you disagree. I think it is importantly different in this respect, which is that the uniform is supposed to signal it's representative of something of which you're supposed to be proud, right? It is already an ad. It is mm. an ad for the team, but True. it's it's the sort of ad that we have come to grow comfortable with because, you know, it's more akin to a, a flag than a billboard, Right, like you yeah. know, when the when the Mariners play out of town, their jersey says Seattle on it, right? They're representing a thing that feels very different than like representing Coca Cola. I don't mm-hmm. have any, you know, particular allegiance to Coca Cola, uh, but I do feel a sense of place and pride in Seattle, and that's not going to be true for everything. But I, I do think that it's sort of importantly different. But I don't think that that will end up being persuasive either. So. I'm bummed about it. I don't know. I think there are probably like soccer kits have ads on them, but they yep. l- look bad. <laughs> they look <laughs> I'm bad. S- I'm so used to seeing them, you know, like the Vodafone ads or whatever that I almost don't even notice. It's almost like it's part of the uniform to me because mm. I, I don't watch that much. But it's also that I guess, A, I'm not really that much of a uniform purist or stickler. I think I care a little less about uniform appearance than a lot of baseball fans do. And and also it's just that I accept the inevitability of sure. this happening. I mean, it's already happened in basketball. Right. It's just going to happen. I guess the, the Players Association in theory 
could reject this. And I think the important thing, obviously, is that if this does happen, that everyone gets to share in that profits. If the players are going to be walking billboards, then they should make sure that they're getting a cut of that revenue. And I'm sure that they will. So unless they really put their feet down and say, we don't want to do this, I would assume that it's almost certainly going to happen in the next few years. And so I'm not going to invest much emotional energy in opposing it because I know that I'll just be frustrated in the end anyway. So that's part of it. I've already conceded and surrendered, but I guess I'm just so deluged by ads. You know, if you're watching a broadcast and listening to like the Yankees broadcasts here, I grew up with, you know, everything that possibly happens in the game is sponsored by someone like this number out in the game is sponsored by this advertiser that has some very tenuous connection to that number or (laughs) you know it's just like on the chiron or it's on the outfield walls or it's on the scoreboard or whatever it's everywhere so i don't care that much but i think that is a that is a meaningful distinction that you make that these are already ads and ads that have some civic pride attached to them because it's representing a, a city to a certain extent well, and I think that it'll be interesting. It's interesting that you you reference the Yankees in particular because you know, having lived in that media market, I know what you mean. They're not. It's not as if they are immune from this. But like, how do the Yankees talk about having a Chrysler ad on pinstripes? Like, how are they <laughs> going to talk about it? How are they going to try to publicly square that financial decision with? The I think it is appropriate to call it fussiness with which and uh, or reverence. That's probably a nicer way of talking about it than fussy. The reverence that they have for the pinstripes, right? I think that if if they're going to put a Chrysler ad on a Yankee uniform, then guys get to have beards. I think that's a fair trade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because what not, are we doing? <laughs> that's something that fans should like celebrate. Like we're not going to get no. anything out of this. I mean, the owners will get something. The players should get something. We're not going to get like our ticket prices lowered or something because there are ads on the jerseys. It just means that we're going to see more ads. So I I wouldn't expect anyone to be happy about this. It's just, I guess, resigned because this is the world we live in and we're already used to ads everywhere. And there won't be an ad block for baseball broadcasts, I guess, where you can just in real time filter out all the ads that you see on jerseys. So you'll actually have to see these things. And then in time, you won't even notice them, which I guess is insidious in a in a way because you're just not even noticing that you are being pitched on some product and i i think a lot of us think that if we're not actively paying attention to an ad we're not being influenced by it but i'm sure that's not true i'm sure the whole principle of advertising is that subconsciously we are being influenced otherwise advertising wouldn't work very well so Yeah, I think it's not something that fans will be happy about and they shouldn't be happy about it, but it's also something that I doubt we can avoid at this point. And in the grand scheme of things, it's still baseball, so it won't ruin anything for me. It's like this podcast doesn't have ads, and I think it's a nice thing that we don't have ads and that our listeners support us on Patreon so that we don't have to, but virtually every other podcast I listen to does have ads, and I still like a lot of those podcasts. If this podcast had ads, I hope people would still enjoy it. Don't worry, we aren't planning to add ads, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and I guess it's sort of remarkable that it hasn't happened already, but you know. Yeah, that's true too. (laughs) I just... I don't know, like, I like those, like, it's going to look so weird on the throwbacks, too, which are the best uniforms. 
Yeah. Maybe we can, can we exempt throwbacks yeah. because they didn't have ads when they were actually worn? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't, you know, if you put a, a Roman ad on a throwback Diamondbacks jersey, I'm going to riot. <laughs> right. All right. Well, that'll be coming. I'm sure we'll have many more opportunities to talk about that. <sighs> so we should answer some emails. I will start with one from Tim who says, how much of Mike Trout's popularity among hardcore baseball fans is that he is not always on the biggest stage? Don't the people who are constantly on the biggest stage eventually find themselves fairly or not hated by the opposition? If Meg, as a Mariners fan, constantly had to see Mike Trout making the playoffs over her team, wouldn't that diminish her enjoyment of his accomplishments? No. <laughs> the answer is no. Um, I mean, I, I guess like it it might diminish the enjoyment that like uh, twenty. 13 Meg had of Mike Trout, but first of all, 2019 Meg is like the Mariners? Who, who, are, who are the Mariners? Yeah. So that's part of it. But I mean, perhaps I, I think that it is difficult for any person to sort of maintain sustained favor in in public. Although people who are sort of even keeled and boring as personalities. And I think I continue to think that Mike Trout is secretly very interesting. Like, I think that he's probably a really good pal, uh -huh. right? He's like a good friend. He seems to just like have specific interests that he is very passionate about. So I think that baseball nerds can relate to that, right? It's like, yes. you know, he probably goes to parties and talks about the weather and his friends are like, oh my God, can we be done <laughs> with the weather? Yeah, and I the way that we talk about Mike Trout's war at right, parties. Right, yeah. the way we talk about Mike Trout is the way Mike Trout talks about the weather. And so I don't know. I think that the reason that we like him so much is because he's just so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But if he if he revealed himself to be, say, a controversial personality, whether he was on a bigger platform or not, I think that that would certainly complicate the – I have the worst Mike Trout hypothetical. Oh, no. <laughs> but, like, imagine Mike Trout with Trevor Bauer's personality. That would be the worst thing to happen in baseball. That yeah. would be the worst thing for baseball ever. <laughs> oh, that would be devastating. I think baseball would just be over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I I guess there are ways in which Mike Trout could be more entertaining, but he's so wholesome and yeah. you really can respect him. And the whole thing about whether athletes should be role models, maybe that is unfair to a certain extent, but he really is one, I think, at least based on what we know about him thus yeah. far. There's just no knock against Mike Trout no. as a player or a person. And I think that's really nice. And yeah. the fact that he does not send offensive tweets, that he just sends like emoji of airplanes or whatever <laughs> and weird spaces before his exclamation marks, that's great. And it's endearing. And yeah, it's a little bit vanilla at times, but he has made vanilla into almost like a brand at this yeah. point. And I think that's nice. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of ways to have an endearing personality, and there are certainly personalities in baseball that are more uh, sort of effervescent that are, I think, similarly endearing. But I think this is a type of endearing personality, the sort of like earnest guy who mm – -hmm. like. The fact that he's not a monster, and I don't mean that in a in any particular way apart from just being like arrogant, is spectacular. Like the yep. fact that he is not just the worst – 
I mean, I've heard he is not a good interview because he's not particularly loquacious, but like in terms of he doesn't come off as just like a pompous jackass. If anyone is entitled to be kind of a jerk about his own performance, it would be it would be Mike Trout. But he's just like steady Eddie. So I I don't think I don't know. I don't want to test this theory too too much, but I don't know that he's ruinable. Right. Man. Yeah, and I, I guess maybe there's a way in which he could get overexposed if we were seeing him every single off season. But I don't really think so. Like if he were. Derek Jeter or something. I guess Derek Jeter is an example of a great player who probably was more hated or people were just sort of sick of Derek Jeter because he was always in the playoffs and there was this mythos about Derek Jeter. But I think that was partly because Derek Jeter became overrated. I mean, he was legitimately a Hall of Fame player. But because he was pumped up so much, because he was discussed as this legendary figure, I think that made people more likely to point out his flaws and say, well, yeah, he's good, but he's actually a really bad fielder and he's costing his team. And so I think that can't really happen to Mike Trout, at least now, because he's amazing and he's the best and you can't really overrate him because he's the best there's ever been to this point in his career. So. I don't think so. I think if we saw him on the national stage, we would be happy that he were getting that exposure. Now, maybe we feel a little more eager to promote him ourselves because we feel like he is not getting that exposure. So if he were just the household name, if he were on the tip of everyone's tongue, if we were seeing him every October shining in these big moments... And we didn't have to convince anyone that Mike Trout is as great as he is, then, yeah, maybe we wouldn't talk about him quite so much because it would just be common knowledge. We would be preaching to the choir, whereas I think there's maybe less so now than there used to be, but a little less awareness of Mike Trout's incredible play than there should be just because he doesn't get the hype that the best player ever should get, I think. So. That's part of it. I think we're trying to balance the scales a little bit by talking about him as much as we do. And we just really enjoy marveling at the stats. And we've talked on the show before about how he and Windsor Replacement have almost this symbiotic relationship where they kind of got big at the same time. And Trout enables us to appreciate what war can do for us. And war enables us to appreciate what Mike Trout can do for his teams. And so that has been a very happy marriage between those two and has enabled us to illustrate his greatness in a way that would be difficult otherwise, because his traditional stats are incredible too, but they don't make the case quite as convincingly as war does, for instance. Yeah, they're not as, it doesn't grab you in quite the same way. Although I think you're right that, you know, even even traditionalists looking at Mike Trout's batting line would say like, oh, this is great. Like he's yeah. hitting above 300. He's like slugging right. 666, right? Like this is a, a phenomenal player. I don't think that there's anything there that would be difficult. But I think that because he is so good at everything, <laughs> that yeah. having a comprehensive stat that articulates value in that way is it is particularly compelling when you're trying to talk about why he is so good so oh my god he's yeah. leading he's leading baseball in wrc plus again oh. <laughs> yep a, and i think part of dream. it maybe also is that when he was introduced to us 
it was kind of an us versus them yeah. thing that he became the avatar of the sabermetric camp at a time when there still still was sort of a, a wall between those worlds. I, I don't think there is so much in 2019, but in 2012, right. there still was. And there was that natural foil for Trout in Miguel Cabrera, who was also great, but was not as well-rounded a player as Trout. And so advanced stats illuminated how great Mike Trout was in a way that the traditional stats didn't. And Cabrera was winning the Triple Crown and he was winning those MVP awards. And at that time, we were still kind of on the outside saying, no, he's actually better. He's the most valuable. And so I think maybe we came to identify with him in a way that we wouldn't have because we were making an argument about how great he was. So that's probably part of it, and it's probably past time to think about things that way, although he has missed out on subsequent awards that he probably deserved Should've to win won, because, yeah. you know, didn't make the playoffs, etc. Right. I guess that could conceivably happen again this year, although, I don't know, he's he's so far out in front of any American League player at this <laughs> point that even if the Angels <laughs> miss the playoffs again, it's hard to imagine anyone else winning that award, but... I think that's that's part of it, is that he was part of that us versus them mentality before that broke down completely. Well, and that you could have a guy who, you know, sort of famously just by where he was from and and literally what the weather was doing that year was sort of, you know, clearly was underdrafted relative to what we would come to expect of him, but also maybe even relative to what would have right. happened if it had just been a different weather year in the Northeast, but has not coupled that with like he, you know, he is not Tom Brady still talking about what went on in his draft year, right? Like Mike Trout doesn't talk about that stuff. He's just like, well, I'm the best player in baseball. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so uh, it is a very, it is a story that I think dovetails nicely with, like you said, the way that sort of sabermetrically inclined uh, writers and fans thought about baseball, but it hasn't seemed to come with a chip on his shoulder about, you know, where he was taken. granted, like the relative yeah. positions for those guys are different. So before anyone gets mad, I know where Tom Brady was drafted. But, you know, it just he's just like, I'm just going to play baseball and be amazing at it. It's great. Here I am. Let's talk right. about the weather. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the promo that MLB released earlier this month? It's like Mike Trout. I'm exactly who I've always been. At least that's the title on YouTube. Oh, no, I'll I don't think I've it. seen that one. It's like a one minute long thing where he's just kind of addressing his reputation and saying like, I'm the same guy I've always been and I still call my parents before every game and I still make time for the things that I think are important and it shows him like signing autographs and he's basically like saying I'm humble and (laughs) down to earth and I appreciate that. MLB is trying to promote Mike Trout because he's a good face for the game and people complain all the time about MLB not doing a good job of that, although I think that's largely unfair. But there's a, a point in this ad where he says, like, some say I'm the best ever to play the game. And it's just it's weird to hear him say that about yeah. himself. Like, even though he's not saying I am, he's saying some say, which is certainly the case. I just said it like two minutes ago. Right. But it's weird to hear him even acknowledge that because I'm I'm used to him not promoting himself at all or not like claiming that he is the best or anything. I've never heard him say anything to the effect. Like I have no idea if he has any, any awareness of the fact that he has like the most war ever through age 27 
or whatever. Like I've never heard him acknowledge that or make mention of it. So it's clearly this is just like a script that someone said, hey, read this. And he right. read it. But it's it's almost strange to hear him even say that some are saying that because I'm so accustomed to him not saying that sort of thing about himself. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I like that. They should just have everyone else in baseball talking about Mike Trout. <laughs> yeah, to have a promo of him like basically saying, I'm Mr. Like, put my head down and work and I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. Like, I think that is a good image to have. Yeah. Even if it, it sounds boring, but like when you then do a promo that's like saying that you're that guy then it, it almost like defeats the purpose of being that guy yeah. if you're if you're the guy who's gonna you know brag about being the guy who's not drawing attention to himself then you are drawing attention to yourself even though obviously like mlb <laughs> asked him to do this but still it's kind of weird thorny yeah <laughs> all right question from oliver I'm currently sitting at an Akron Rubber Ducks game in the rain, and something made my mind trail off. For each game, the home team, Akron, labels one of the away players as the strikeout player of the game. They announce this over the loudspeakers before each of the hitters at bats. Do you think this would be more of a hindrance and distraction or more of a motivation for the hitter and or pitcher? In this particular at bat, the hitter proceeded to hit the second pitch on a line through to the left field for a single And this is something that Sam and I saw and heard a lot during our summer in the Pacific Association because just about every team did it there where you would have like a designated strikeout guy in the opposing team's lineup. And if that guy struck out in that game, then there would be like a discount on hot dogs or something in that game. And it would be announced as the guy walked up to the plate and then everyone would be watching to see if the guy actually struck out so that they could get their discount. I uh, I personally, I would be worried about, I think it probably, first of all, I think it probably does not matter at all, mm-hmm. even a little bit, yep. would be my, my suspicion. But I, hmm, I guess it's motive, it might be motivating for the pitcher. I yep. don't think it would make much difference to the hitter. I think that this is a really good time, though, for me to tell a totally unrelated story okay. about watching the Atlantic League All-Star Game. Oh, yeah. So I watched the Atlantic League All-Star Game because I cannot help myself. And <laughs> this is, I swear, it's vaguely related. They had they had a, a troop of guest mascots, uh, which is a, a real troop. Uh, and I was made aware of this uh, by a friend, so now I have to find the name of it because it is funny in a way that uh, I should I should actually uh, say something about the superstars. <laughs> and they yeah. they take animals and they take athletes and they mash them up. Yes. And at this one was Nolan Rhino, and the announcers <laughs> said. And they did not show it because, you know, you have you uh, are familiar with indie ball. Not a lot of camera angles available when those games no. are broadcast at all. Mm-hmm. So they could not show the, the dugout, but they said that Nolan Rhino was pretending to urinate on the crowd from the top <laughs> of one of the dugouts. And they seemed very amused by this. And so I can only imagine what Nolan Rhino was doing that successfully mimed this activity 
And so anyway, that's not related at all to what you are saying, except to say that they have some real weird and sometimes mean uh, promos and sundry in Indie Ball. And uh, I was amused by that. Yeah, no, that's true. And I don't, I mean, I've never seen like a hitter give any indication that he recognized that he was the strikeout player of the game. I can't imagine they know. I yeah I mean in some of those parks it, you can't help but hear it unless sure. you're like so in the zone that you don't know anything that's going on around you but I would guess that at that level you're used to it you just don't care it's basically like heckling it's being heckled by the opposing team's PA person right. not a fan but that's the, the same sort of thing so I mean, if it were me and I were the strikeout player of the game, it'd probably affect me, I would think. I don't know. There are there are ways in which I I am not that sensitive to the opinions of the public, and there are ways in which I am. Like, uh, if I'm going to the store and I'm wearing pajamas or something, I'll just wear pajamas to the store, and <laughs> my wife will be like, don't you want to maybe put on some real clothes? And I'll be like, no, I'm okay. And uh, that may be because she doesn't want to be seen with me more so than yeah. concerned for, for me personally. But <laughs> but that kind of thing I'll do. But on the other hand, like I was just in an elevator just before we started recording and there were a couple other people in the elevator and I was going to the eighth floor and the rows were kind of confusing and I was like looking for eight and I couldn't find it and I was feeling the eyes of the other people in the elevator looking at me wondering when I was going to press the button and finally I just like stabbed at a button because I was like oh man I got to press something all these people are waiting for me to press a button it turned out to be eight so it was okay I went to the floor (laughs) I wanted to but the point is like that got to me (laughs) the most low stakes low pressure (laughs) kind of situation that I could think of and I was thinking of that so if I were a baseball player, yeah, I'd probably be aware of that and maybe it would be in the back of my head. But I'm not a baseball player and that is one of the reasons why I'm not because that sort of thing probably would weigh on me. So I'd have to imagine that if this were, I mean, maybe at that level, you have some guys who don't have the mental makeup to ignore that sort of thing. Whereas sure. by the time you get to the big leagues, you probably do. But I can't imagine that if we could do a study of sorts, if we had this in a database, who was the strikeout hitter in every game, and we looked to see if there was any effect for more strikeouts in games where the guy was the strikeout hitter, I highly doubt we would find anything. I think that I would perhaps be predisposed to to overswinging because I would be like, hey, screw you, I'm going to hit a home (laughs) run. And then I'd be like, I struck out on three pitches. (laughs) So I think that that is, uh, I think that that's definitely a possibility. I'm not saying that I would not be weak-willed. I'm saying that baseball players are not weak-willed. I would almost certainly crumble under the pressure. But then again, if I were facing major league velocity or even indie ball velocity, I'd crumple under the pressure then too. I don't know that a promotion would have much to do with it. (laughs) No. Yeah, I would be the strikeout player of the game, but just because I would already be striking right. out every time. So. The, un- the undeclared <laughs> strikeout <laughs> yeah. player of the game. Yeah. Related question from Charles. He says, I was just thinking about the way we look at clutch and momentum, that anyone who can make it to the majors is probably relatively even keeled at the plate or on the mound. But what about at lower levels? If one of the main arguments against paying attention to it is that big leaguers are closer to robots than we are, does it make sense to consider clutchness at lower levels? How much should college recruiters take this into account? Or in drafting a rec softball team, should clutch concerns (laughs) still just be a tiebreaker or should it weigh much more into the decision making? Oh, geez. 
I think that, hmm, I don't think that it, this is like a great, man, do I believe this to be true? Do I believe that what I'm about to say is true? <laughs> I I don't think that it's much different. I think that there is, uh, that human beings have different sort of either innate or learned abilities to handle disappointment in a way that is not personally destructive, which mm -hmm. is different than clutchness, but I think related to that. So I think that the the version of this, and this is definitely a thing that gets thought about both, you know, when uh, guys are so being scouted as amateurs and then as they're progressing, like sort of your ability to deal with the wear and tear and... and mental difficulty of the game but i don't think clutch i don't think that that's a i don't think that that's a real thing that would matter much differently at a lower level mm, i don't think it would i don't think it would i'm just yeah. gonna keep saying that over and over again you talk for a little <laughs> while and i'm gonna try to uh think about what i actually mean when i say it. <laughs> i i mean there's got to be more variation in players' mental skills at right. that level, I would think, because we know there's more variation in physical skills, and we know that if you watch a, an A-ball game, there might be a game where there's a Hall of Famer, a future Hall of Famer in there, and there's a guy who'll never get out of A-ball. So there's more difference there than there would be in a big league game, because if you're in a big league game, then everyone's gotten to the big league. So you've had to survive certain trials to reach that point. So I would think that would also apply. I mean, I guess it's possible that like mental skills might be, maybe you'd be filtered out sooner. I don't know whether, like if the pressure gets to you in a way that is really debilitating, maybe that shows up in Little League. Maybe it shows up in high school or college. I don't know. Maybe you don't even get to the point where you're a pro ball player and that gets to you. But I would think, I mean, there must be some players at that level who are, more susceptible to performing differently in pressure situations sure, in a way that is harmful to them than once you get to the majors. I think that that is likely true, but I guess I just would not necessarily view that as innate or stagnant. So I don't know that I would over... I think it would be a data point that would be interesting, but I don't know that it would be one where I would necessarily say this is this necessarily means anything predictive about how this person yeah. is going to be able to grow and adapt because you have to you have to undergo the difficulty before you know how you're going to respond to it the place where it starts to matter is like how do you respond to it the eighth time right like once you've built up some sort of understanding of not only like how you experience that in game but then the emotional and sort of mental taxing that comes with it I just don't think that that would be something that's stagnant. I mean, you you adapt to that stuff and learn how to cope in a way that is productive. That's just a big part of growing up as a person. Yeah. So I think that's what I mean when I say I don't think it would matter, not that it doesn't matter in the moment or that it can't end up being a problem because there is some filtering process that goes on, you know, and that happens on a lot of different variables, some of which are performance-based and some of which are personality-based, but... It's not as if you're going to have a perfect understanding of what a guy's going to be like as a grown person, not just as a grown baseball player when they're, you know, in college or in A-ball or whatever. Uh, there's going to be some change. And, you know, I think it's it, part of it's just like 
acclimating to the stage and then people do that and they do great, right? Like there were definitely, there were definitely dudes in the futures games who were, you could tell they were nervous and they were overthrowing and they didn't have their best stuff because you could just tell that they were nervous. Well, maybe the next showcase they go to, they won't be like that because they'll have gotten that stuff out of the way, right? They know how to sort of focus in and adjust and view it as another game. So I, it's not that it doesn't matter that it can't end up mattering a lot. It's just that I don't know that we necessarily know what snapshot is the one that matters until yeah. we do. Yeah, that's a good point. You always hear people say like the miners is where guys figure out how to deal with failure. That's often where they encounter their first struggles. Yeah. Because most pro ball players were really good in amateur ball. And so, yeah, it would sort of defeat the purpose of player development if the first time someone kind of cracked under pressure or got so demoralized that it affected his performance that you just said, okay, you're gone <laughs> because the the whole idea is to try to learn from that. Right. Now, maybe it gets to the point where you prove unable to learn from that and eventually you do wash out. So, so that probably does happen. But I think a lot of guys would experience that at first, but figure out some way to get stronger because of it. Like yeah. I'm reading David Cohn's book that came out a few months ago, The Education of a Pitcher. And he talks in there about his first postseason start in the 1988 NLCS. And he was, uh, I think, uh, 25 or so then. And that was his first full season, his first postseason appearance. And he had written an ill-advised column like a, a ghost written column in the New York media where he just sort of trash talked the Dodgers a, a few days before that start and that column got like pinned to the walls of the Dodgers clubhouse and they were all yelling at him and as soon as he was on the mound he deeply regretted having written yeah. that and given that ammunition to the Dodgers and he was quite bad in that game. He he went two innings, he gave up five runs, and he was done. And he says that it got to him. Like, he started dwelling on what he had written and regretting it, and he was just very much out of the right mindset. But he says... On the one hand, that was very costly because the Mets ended up losing that series and they might have won if he had been better. It went seven games, so that could have been the decisive thing. On the other hand, he says it made him a better and stronger pitcher and right. he pitched in two more games in that series. He threw 10 more innings. He gave up one run. He was just fine. And he learned from that. He didn't write any more ghost-written columns <laughs> where he trash-talked the other team. Now, that's David Cohn, who is sure. <laughs> a great pitcher and prides himself on being a, a pretty mentally tough guy. And so maybe not everyone can make the adjustment from that mistake and from that failure that he did and go on to have a Hall of Fame caliber career. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about. I think we're you wouldn't want to make a snap judgment and say so-and-so is you know soft or whatever and he can't right. be better than this because people can be better than that. And the other thing is that when we talk about clutchness in the majors, we're not saying it doesn't exist to some small extent. We're just right. saying it's not huge probably and it's not predictive because like even if it were real, 
the differences are not so great that it wouldn't take like thousands of plate appearances to at least statistically say whether this is real or not. And by that point, it doesn't really help you because that's like the whole career, basically. So I think that would probably also be true in the minors where you probably have even smaller samples and more factors that are changing and guys getting promoted and all sorts of things that would make it impossible to say that so-and-so was unclutched based on stats in a timeline that would help you tell whether he was going to be a good future major leaguer, a good prospect. Unless one day we have like, you know, heartbeat monitors in games or something, and you could tell that someone is like his pulse is elevated because the pressure is getting to him or something like that. Some invasive thing that minor leaguers will probably have to deal with someday because they're not in the union. That might give you some more insight into why someone is or isn't performing. But just based on the outcomes, I think it would be very tough to tell. Yeah. And you, I mean, like part of building, part of building real self-esteem is failing and realizing you can survive that failure and do it better next time or do it differently or fail again, (laughs) (laughs) as the case may be. So I think that we are sometimes down on failure as a means of instruction. And I don't mean that in like a way that should be draconian or punitive or mean spirited, but it's an important thing, right? Like, and you, like you said, like there are definitely dudes who face failure for the first time when they get to professional baseball. There are guys who, you know, underperform in AAA and end up being amazing because they were bored, right? Yeah. They need the challenge, right? Like this happened with Lindor, right? Like there are, there are prospects now where it's like, well, we should probably just promote them because what are they doing? Mm-hmm. They're not being challenged there. So I I don't know. I think we're, we're a little down on failure. Yeah. All right. T says, I recently finished listening to a two-part episode of Gimlet's Reply All that examined the development of data into the New York Police Department's effort to fight crime, which began with mapping pickpockets' roots and ended with stop and frisk. You've at times pondered the dystopic. In the future, do you think players will try to cheat the data the way they cheat PED testing? And I wasn't totally clear what he was asking, so I asked him to clarify, and he says... In general, I'm thinking of an incentive structure in which it is to the mutual benefit of player and coach to doctor the data. For example, if the effectiveness of a minor league coach is determined by a quota, whereby a coach's performance is judged by how many players increase velocity or spin rate by X percent, that coach would have incentive to cook the data, perhaps only to blame that player's inevitable regression on injury or faulty mechanics. If Yonder Alonso might serve as an example, small samples increasingly get paid in a market where development isn't linear. In other words, in a newly disrupted market, what is signal and what is noise? So he is essentially suggesting that we pay a lot of attention to data and player development now. I just wrote about it. And if it is to the players and to the coaches' advantage to make it look like that data is more impressive like if someone's spin rate jumped suddenly or something or his movement was different or something he wants to know if we'll ever get to the point where somehow they will doctor that data to make it look like the players have improved performance improved skill even if it's not i guess you know the actual outcomes because it would be difficult to doctor whether someone went two for four or over four how would they do it though that is the question (laughs) how would they 
Do it though. Yeah. I don't think that, I don't, I certainly do not think that you would have coaches and sort of team personnel in cahoots with players. I don't think that would happen because their incentives are, you know, their goals are aligned to a large degree, but not perfectly. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I think it, and I think it would be hard. Oh, I want this as like a movie, though. Yeah, just be a cool movie. I know there would just be such a. Li- I feel like there would be a, a very limited range of things that you could doctor, though, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you couldn't. I mean, you could monkey around with. It seems like there would be a limited range of things that you could doctor, where someone watching it couldn't say. Wait, what? Yes. That seems wrong, right? Right. Like, um, you know, you could, I guess you could like adjust exit velocity up, Mm -hmm. but you can kind of tell watching, like you can tell if a ball is hard hit or not by watching it. Exactly how hard hit, sure, maybe not, but like you can get a general sense of how hard a ball has been hit and you then have the outcome of that you know, batted ball, right? Right. So that's all seems out of out of it. You could monkey with like sprint speed, but mm-hmm. all you need is a is a scout there with a stopwatch to time yeah. you. So that seems like it's out. Yeah. You can you could like adjust within a very small range, like launch angle, I guess. But again, you can look at it and see. Yeah. To some extent. I guess you could adjust anything subtly. I mean, right. you can't say that an 85 mile per hour batted ball is actually a 110 mile per hour batted ball. Right. Because you can see that difference. But if you were to tamper with someone's data and say, actually, he has an average of 96 instead of 94.5 or something. I right. Mean, and if you were a front office person just looking at the numbers because you haven't watched every game that this guy's played and you're deciding whether we want to promote this guy or call him up to the next level or something, maybe that makes the difference in a way that would be difficult to detect. I mean, eventually you'll get exposed because you just won't be very good. But, you know, who knows? By then, maybe you've made the majors. Maybe you have signed an extension or something based on this data or, I don't know, something like spin rate, which is difficult to see. Sure. You know, I I mean, if your pitches aren't moving more than the spin rate only matters so much, but if you have a high spin rate, someone might look at you as someone with more potential who, if we adjusted the spin axis of your pitches or something, you could get more movement down the road. Like, I could see something like that. Or or if you just, like, your, your hardest batted ball, if you changed one batted ball from, like, uh, 105 to 115 or something, and, and that would say, hey, this guy is capable of hitting a ball that hard. That's a good sign. And if you didn't actually watch the video and confirm... I just think it would require a lot of people being less good at their jobs than I know people who have those jobs being. Yeah, that's Be- true. You know, I think... Because, like, I... I know, like, I know front office people who their impulse, their instinct when they get sort of unusual, like, stat cast information is to go watch it and right. then to assume that there was a calibration issue. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. <laughs> like, their, their instinct is skepticism. And so 
I guess if you were, I guess if you were a player who had, I guess that if you were a player who was maybe on the decline, you would be the best position to take advantage of this because you've already established a baseline of performance and maybe you're slipping a little bit and you can delay people realizing the slippage and they might mm-hmm. just attribute what's going on to some, you know, bad batted ball luck or whatever, right? Or yeah. like a, an outing where you got batted around a little bit uh, as a pitcher, but the the velocity is still good, the spin's still good. I think it would be really hard for young guys to get away with this. And I don't think anyone could get away with it for very long. No, that's the thing. I, I, mean, he I mentioned, want someone to try, though. I, I mean, I don't because they get in such trouble. <laughs> right. You'd never, you'd never be on a team ever again. Yeah. Even right. if you could figure out how to do it, you would just be done. Yeah. So don't, well, don't anyone do it. If you were a coach, you'd definitely be done. If you oh, were yeah. a player and you could still play, you'd, you'd probably get another chance. But I think because he mentioned the comparison to like trying to cheat PD testing, I'm thinking of like, you know, instead of having someone pee in a cup for you to get a clean test, you have some better hitter like take a swing with your swing sensor or something, and suddenly oh. your your swing speed is faster than it was. Although it'd be weird if like everything about your swing suddenly changed and you had a different like attack angle and you know swing plane and everything but if you had someone who was like had a similar swing to you but swung harder and you just handed off your center to him and were like hey i I need a favor like i i need to get my average swing speed up a little bit and someone were inclined to help you out with that or you you somehow trick them you you switch the swing centers so that the, the, the best hitter on the team is using your blast center or whatever i mean this is all pretty far-fetched like that is that's more conceivable than like tampering with like trackman or statcast data that'd be difficult to do because it's all automated and centralized and all of that gets recorded by like a stringer who's in the park so you'd just have to have that person on your side you would just need so many people to be in on it and very bad at their jobs yeah and and it all gets uploaded right away to the front office so like i don't know at what point and then what happens when you go on the road right that's a problem too (laughs) because then presumably this is all harder to affect and uh and then your your baseball ops group is going to be like, wow, these are the weirdest home away splits we've ever seen. <laughs> right. And they're going to start digging. And then you're going to have to go into your manager and be like, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, it's an interesting scenario. I mean, in theory, it's more plausible than it used to be because we have all these process measures now, which right. in theory you could tamper with in a less obvious way than the outcome measures like you're probably not going to just change what's in the box score that'd be difficult to do but yeah. changing some something behind the performance that might be more feasible but even so pretty difficult to do and you'd have to sustain it for a while in order to benefit from it really and i don't know that you could cuz you and at some point like you have to demonstrate the skill in games too right. like if if you're not having any success and and your spin rate is really high i i, I just it only goes so far like maybe it, it gives you a longer leash maybe it keeps you from getting cut like i could right. see that like if you're if you have a feeling that you're about to lose your roster spot and you could 
tamper with one of your pitches so that suddenly it looks like, hey, he's got a a high spin curveball or something. And then maybe you get another chance because someone says, well, if we could just get him to throw that curve more or something, then maybe there's something there. But again, okay, then what happens when they tell you to throw the curve more and your curve is still bad and you're still getting knocked around? Right. So it only works for so long. It only works for so long. It requires, and we would all write about it, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So that's the thing. It's like once you start putting any of this into games, we would all be sitting there being like, wow, that's really weird. Like we're watching that guy and he should be a lot better. (laughs) Although we don't have that data in the minors, to be fair. That's true. In the minors, you could could get away with it for longer, maybe. Mm-hmm. But once you get called up, you're you're really <laughs> toast. Yeah, right. Because you know yeah. somebody. I mean, there are a lot. There are plenty of articles that we run at Fangraphs where it's like, it's so. Isn't it so funny that like the, these are the results and these are the underlying right. stats? Like da da da. Yeah. But after a while, people will be like, so hey, <laughs> we've been <laughs> yeah. keeping an eye on this, and we're here to tell you that something's something's up. Something yeah. has gone terribly wrong. Right. It's like Seth Lugo, for instance, he was like the stat cast hero for his high spin curveball. And it was kind of perplexing because he wasn't getting really great results. And now he is, though, like now he's effective and good and has thrown his curveball at least a little bit more than he used to in his sort of changes pitch selection. Anyway, the point is, like, ultimately, he backed up what people were saying and now he's striking out like 12 guys per nine and he used to strike out like six guys per nine so i think that gave him it it made him much more of an object of interest i think than he would have been otherwise because we knew that thing about him and that thing augured well for his future which as it turns out has proven to be pretty prescient but if you just have that high spin curveball and you never get good then i don't know i i guess you can You can hang on for a little longer, but first of all, you have to be pretty good to get to the big leagues and and to stay there. And even at lower levels, it's only going to get you so many chances. But it wouldn't be like the most shocking thing. Like in a world where we saw hacking, one team hacking another, like it's not the most inconceivable thing that this could happen. And cameras on phones that are banned in the United States now. Uh And I mean, I'm not saying that no one would try (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying I don't think that you could have you couldn't have sustained I don't think that you could have sustained success in your subterfuge for very long. Right. Before it got and and once you reach the major league level you're you're definitely toast. And I think that you know there are plenty of you know there are plenty of pieces of technology that we have to measure players that are more sophisticated than a radar gun or a stopwatch. But even at the minor league level, where these guys are being watched and scrutinized so extensively, both from team personnel, other teams' personnel, and then, you know, prospect people, I I think that it would be tricky there, even, even with, you know, analysts who are just doing public side writing, not having access to track mandate at that level or whatever. I, I just don't think you could do it for very long. It would mm-hmm. make a good true crime podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, it would. All right. Question from Jimmy. I got a kick out of this quote from Dallas Keuchel in The Gamer, written in The Athletic by David O'Brien after the July 2nd loss of the Braves to the Phillies. Keuchel allowed the deciding two runs on a Jay Bruce double in a 2-0 loss. Here was his quote. 
Quote, I mean, outside of a so-so slider to Bruce, which wasn't that bad of a pitch, it was just the wrong pitch, wrong location at the wrong time. He was swinging. I knew he was. I was trying to bait him off the plate, and he just got enough to get a double down the line. And Jimmy continues, I just thought the assessment was funny that the pitch was so-so when it was by his reckoning the wrong pitch, wrong location, wrong time. Not to take away from Bruce, who got a nice hit down the line, but doesn't that mean it was the worst possible pitch? (laughs) Wrong pitch to throw, not sequenced well, and mislocated. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. I think that that's a good assessment. Yeah, there, there is. I, I see what Jimmy's saying here. I think I have a different interpretation. I, I think Keichel is saying that he's saying the plan was good because sure. he knew Bruce was swinging and he was trying to get him to swing at a ball, which is a good plan. That that can't be a sure. bad plan to no, get someone a good to plan. swing it. Yeah. So part one is good. Yeah. So I, I don't think he's saying that that the idea was bad. And then I watched the pitch. The pitch was in the strike zone, so he he didn't do a good job of executing because it, it wasn't. He was trying to get him to swing it at a pitch outside the zone, and it ended up being inside the zone, and Bruce got enough of it to, to get a double. But as I said via email in response to this, I, I think he's saying that in most situations, this pitch would have worked out okay. It's like It's like when we say that someone was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Like, we're not saying that it, they are to blame necessarily for being in that place at, their, at that time. We're just saying that they were the victim of circumstances. Right. Like they, they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and it came back to bite them. But nothing they did was necessarily blameworthy. Whereas I think in this situation, I think Keiko's sort of saying the same thing. Like the, the pitch itself wasn't horrible. Like it wasn't a hanger. It was kind of low and away and kind of close to the corner, which in most cases would be fine and wouldn't normally be pulled for a double. And so I think he's saying that in this case, it was the wrong pitch at the wrong time because it just so happened that Jay Bruce hit a double. And, you know, whether it's a credit to Bruce for putting a good swing on it or just it happened to be the one time when a pretty decent pitch was hit, you know, maybe it was luck, maybe it was skill, whatever it was, but Keuchel wasn't totally blowing it by throwing a, a total meatball. It was just he was kind of a, a victim of a good hitter or a cruel universe and, and things transpired in a way that wouldn't typically have transpired. Yeah, I think that we tend to not be quite as generous with our um, understanding of who is responsible for what in any given plate appearance yeah. as we maybe could be. Like, you know, sometimes guys just get like a, just get a lucky, yeah, a, a lucky little swing on something. I watched, I don't remember what game this was. I still have like very severe time dilation from Cleveland. <laughs> it's been weeks later, but now we're into trade value. So I'm not going to know what day it is until September. But anyway, Ronald Acuna just did the, had just like a little excuse me swing and he singled and he looks surprised to be on first base. And you're like, what are you going to do? Like sometimes yeah. it just happens. It's like, it's no one's, you're not bad at your job. Sometimes other people. Yeah, everyone's good at their job. Sometimes everyone is good at their job and they're just a little bit better or they're a little luckier. Right. Yeah. So it was so-so. It, he probably could have gotten it farther outside, sure. but it wasn't terrible. And so he was, uh, it was, yeah, wrong, wrong pitch in the wrong place at the wrong time. But at another time, it might have been okay. I think that was the idea. And Jay Bruce singled? He doubled. Oh, well, see, I mean, now it's less fun, but <laughs> I, I still... 
His line is is more sensical now, and it bums me out. (laughs) All right. Last one from Maximilian. He says, can you see a world in which Luis Renjifo doesn't make this tag? And he links us to the play, which I will link you all to. This is uh, what Stephen Piscotti sliding into second base. This was a game, I think, on June 30th. And he slid into second. He sprained his knee sliding into the bag. And Renjifo, is, as soon as he realizes that that Piscotti is off the bag, because he, he sort of like over slid the bag, and then he was just lying there cradling his head in his hands, obviously in pain and unable to move back to the bag. And as soon as Renjifo realized this, he very quickly scrambled over and applied the tag to Piscotti and got the out. And so Maximilian says... I was surprised I didn't hear any grumbling that this tag was unsporting or see any hesitation on Hifo's part that he was tagging out an injured player who had beaten him to the base. I've seen soccer matches where a team will kick the ball out of bounds to stop play when one of their players is hurt, and then after the ball is put back in play, the opposing team will return it to the team with the injured player. I think I have also seen it where the opposing team will even kick it out themselves. So he's asking if it's possible to envision a world where Renjifo, just like out of sympathy for Piscotti's pain here, does not apply this tag. I don't think so, first of all, before we get to that. (laughs) Can we take a moment to note how Andrelton Simmons is still like just a a mad genius? (laughs) Because... He is why this tag happened. And I don't say that as a, a, a knock on him. And I, I, I don't think that Rengifo behaved in a way that is bad here. Rengifo clearly thought that he had already applied the tag and that Piscotti right. was just out. You can you can tell when you watch the clip that he, you know, he's showing the ball to the second base umpire like, hey, I got him. And Simmons, because he is a wizard, is like, hey, just make sure though. <laughs> yeah. Hey, why don't you just go make sure? Mm-hmm. And points to him and says, hey, go apply the tag before he can f- put his foot back on the base. So that's one thing. We should all just appreciate uh, Andrelton Simmons more than we do. I don't think that this is especially unsporting. You know, after the play is concluded, they they both go over there and sort of check on Piscotti to see if he's okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like he, like, socked him in the jar or anything or, like, stepped on it. <laughs> I mean, like, I can imagine things that are sort of outside the normal course of play that would result in in the baseball internet sitting up and saying like, hey, that's not the way that we want to be on the field. But this is, first of all, the way to conclude play on the field, right? To, to get a break in action. Piscotti was clearly going to have to be helped off the field or, you know, was in some serious amount of pain anyhow and was not moving. I I don't know. I don't think that, I don't think that this is a bad... I don't think this is bad. I think Rangifo's a little um, forceful with his tag, but I don't think he meant to be in a yeah. way that was like harmful or anything Careful like that. Careful with that knee. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He does, get, he does get a little close to me like, hey, buddy. <laughs> but, um, he, you know, I, I, I think it's okay. Do we have yeah. an expectation that that you're going to basically concede a base runner simply because a guy's injured? I don't think so. I yeah, don't think and- we do. Sam answered this via email, and since he's away this week, I will read his response. He said, I've been thinking about this and haven't come to a firm conclusion, but I think there's something about the flow of each sport that makes the concept of stopping for your opponent a little different. 
With soccer, there's no stoppage between plays. You just run nonstop, very fluid. So to take care of a player, somebody, a teammate or an opponent, actually has to end the play. So that's what they do, kick it out of bounds. But in baseball, the play ends when everybody is on a base or else out. So while it's sort of cruel to take advantage of the player's injury that way, it is from a pace-setting standpoint the equivalent of kicking a ball out of bounds. You end the play. Then we can turn our attention to the patient. This is, of course, a speculative explanation. I don't know what the cultures of football and basketball are around hurt players, but for this theory to hold, football would be more like baseball and basketball would be more like, but not entirely like, sort of in the middle, soccer. And Maximilian responded to that and said, I think it probably holds in cycling, or at least in the Tour de France 15 years ago when we all watched cycling. Readers do not seek to gain time when their riders are involved in a crash. Fluid contest that does not stop until the end of the stage. Competitors wait for one another or at least do not take advantage of their opponent's injury or misfortune. In an even more extreme example from another sport, racing. When a race car was involved in a gnarly crash in the final race in the movie Cars, a junior race car abandoned his hopes of winning a title to help his veteran opponent cross the finish line. So... I guess that's a good distinction. That that makes some sense to me. Yeah, it's. A, I think it's just a very different... I think that if there were a way to sort of press one's advantage in the moment, we might think about it a little differently. Although I don't know that the moral calculus necessarily changes because there are a lot of ways to demonstrate care for another person that don't yeah. require you, in, in this case, like allowing a base runner, even if it, you know it's clear that it would have been a pinch runner at some point here. But he's not pressing an advantage. This is normal course of play. And I think Sam's answer where it's like, this is how you how you stop the action on the field so that you can you can actually have medical personnel come out and do what they need to i think is a good one that's an important distinction to draw here but i think it's okay i mostly just send in off andleton simmons <laughs> and piscotti's <laughs> yeah. okay thankfully like he he's yeah. back i think he's back today in fact yeah like or if- may- maybe recently Like at first, Renjifo just, he seems to apply the tag and then he immediately runs off the field. But I think he just didn't realize that Piscotti was hurt because then he does see that he's lying there writhing and he stops running off the field and he comes back and he actually motions for the trainer to come out and he's like clearly concerned. So I would think it seems callous if a player, you know, if he had just run off the field without a second glance and and he knew that Piscotti was hurt and didn't demonstrate any concern, then. That would yeah, be like that would be bad. Yeah, like there are times when a when a pitcher will hit a batter, and it's not intentional, and he'll show a lot of remorse and concern, especially if the batter really seems to be seriously hurt. There are other times when the pitcher will not really react at all to hitting a batter and I guess it's maybe partly like a macho thing or like I'm not gonna show that I can crack here like I own the mound and it's my batter's box and I'll throw the pitch wherever I want to and that's something that to me I guess sort of like reflects poorly on that player I mean I don't know what's going on inside and whether there's a a lot of internal turmoil but if he doesn't seem to show any concern and he's just like trying to be the intimidator or the headhunter or whatever then I would think that 
that looks not great for him. But right. I, I like to see players, you know, yeah, sure, get the out, apply the tag, but then show some level of sympathy for another yeah. human being. <laughs> yeah, I think you can accomplish both things and doing the one doesn't make you sort of insensitive in the other case. You know, I, I think it's probably like everything. There's a bit of it's going to depend case by case. But, you know, um, I don't know when uh, when Kyle Seeger hit a, a line drive that hit Matt Shoemaker on the head, like he still took first base and then looked like he wanted to throw up while he was standing there. But you know, I think people understand that you're gonna you're gonna do the baseball thing because there's a pause that's gonna naturally come right after that, and so it's fine to kind of conclude the play and then take the time to do what you need to and sort of show your sympathy. That's the best part of All Star Week. I've decided yeah. is just it's like all these guys are like we have the weirdest job on the planet maybe not the weirdest but one of the weirdest it definitely ranks and we should all just be pals because who else is going to understand what we're doing <laughs> yeah by the way last thing I, I just happened to see this while we were talking but the Trenton Thunder bat dog rookie oh yeah made, he made a visit to Yankee Stadium and he was not allowed to be the bat dog in the game because evidently MLB rules prohibit bat dogs <laughs> so rookie just had to watch the game from the sidelines and take a picture with his pal Aaron Judge who I guess got to be friends with him in Trenton this seems like something we need to change why why can't we have big league bat dogs that would make everyone's life better did someone see Airbud and like get nervous? <laughs> I mean, I know there's occasionally a time when a, a bat dog gets a little overzealous, and maybe it's like a rookie bat dog. This one is named Rookie, but it's not a rookie. But sometimes you see them like go chasing after a ball or something. But that's just precious and wonderful, and we love when that happens. So maybe Rob Manfred wouldn't like it because of pace of play. But I would want bat dogs in all possible places. In, I, in every I, place. Yeah. I'd be curious. I wonder whether there are park effects for bat dogs. I mean, I wonder, like, if you put Rookie in any ballpark, does his training transfer over so that if he's trained to be a bat dog in Trenton, if you put him in Yankee Stadium with the, the bright lights and the big crowds and a bit of a different layout, could he just seamlessly adapt his bat dog duties? Or would he wilt under the pressure the way that we were just talking Man, about minor a, leaguers? Maybe need a clutch score for Rookie. Yeah. But please bring on big league bat dogs. I, I mean, I don't want to put any bat people out of jobs. But, sure, no. But bat dogs are just better, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. And what other bat animals could we have? I don't know. You I could think. have, I guess you couldn't have like a bat cat. No, bat cat probably cats would not be very cooperative. <laughs> cats aren't super trainable and they probably would struggle to get the bat to the guy. <laughs> yeah, you need a certain size and strength. We and could have bat raccoons. Pliability and, yeah, we, we raccoons. Could have, we could not... have bat uh, miniature ponies. Sure, yeah, okay. I could see that happening. Uh, people do yoga with goats. And as an aside, <laughs> I've, I still have yet to get an explanation of why. I don't I don't understand and I don't... Don't tell us. We don't want to yeah, know. I've we're not really actually... into that. Because... We're not asking the question. We just don't understand it and we're content to, to be ignorant. So that's exactly. not what we're asking. Yeah. Now I'm going to think about this. <laughs> I only have one more thing I have to edit today so I can think about bad animals. That's fine. Yeah. 
dogs are just, I think, probably uniquely suited to, to yeah. be a bat carrier, yeah. as they are in many other ways to be a pet and an assistant to humans. But, <laughs> but yeah, please, uh, we should break the bat dog barrier. I, I yeah. don't see why we can't have this. <sighs> Man. Hmm. If Bill Vec were around, I'm surprised he never did this. Maybe he did. I don't know. Maybe don't there's know. a rule against it because he tried it. But Maybe. Yeah, it just seems like such a missed opportunity. I agree. And every team could have a different kind of dog. Yeah. So there could be all kinds of different dogs. <laughs> that would be so great. You don't oh, yeah. want them all to be the same because give us all the good dogs. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I'm Seems think- like they're always golden retrievers, I guess. They have to do a lot of retrieving. They but- do. And I think retrievers are pretty easily trainable. But you could mm-hmm. have all kinds. We should have a French bulldog bad dog. <laughs> 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 uh, okay. Let's okay. just end on this yeah, note where we're all ha- contemplating bad dogs. What a nice thing to get. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> what a nice thing. <laughs> all right. We'll leave it there. Okay, just Ben here now. I thought we would end there, but I realized that we hadn't done a stat blast. And just after Meg and I finished recording, we got a stat blastable question from Jimmy. And I really like this question, so I want to stick it in here. So, Jesse, take it away. Alright, Jimmy says, a couple weeks back, Steven Strasberg pitched an immaculate inning. I really enjoy when that happens because it's just about as neat and tidy as you can be to do your job as a pitcher. Nine pitches, nine strikes, three down. Well, my friend just reminded me that Strasburg also has a three-pitch inning in his career. September 29th, 2017. Maybe it should be called an economical inning. A parsimonious inning? An efficient inning doesn't work because that's common parlance all the time when the pitcher gets three outs on relatively few pitches. I like economical inning. That works. Sometimes you hear that about non-three-pitch innings too. So Jimmy wants to know how many pitchers have pitched both an immaculate and an economical inning in their career. And he linked me to a page on the site, Baseball Almanac, that has a list of all the three-pitch innings. Baseball Almanac also has a list of all the immaculate innings. And these are, of course, the economical innings and immaculate innings that have been recorded. We only have pitch counts going back to 1988, but the site also includes many earlier examples that were just mentioned in news reports, game stories, various other sources, and have been collected by this site and its readers. So I took the list of guys with immaculate innings and the list of guys with economical innings. I put them both in spreadsheets. I cleaned them up a little. I removed the duplicates for the guys who have done one or the other multiple times. And that left me with 90 individual pitchers who have pitched immaculate innings. That's the nine pitch version. And 162 individual pitchers who have pitched economical innings, the three pitch version, which maybe makes sense. It's gotten a little easier to get the immaculate inning over time just because there are many more whiffs these days than there used to be. There used to be a lot more contact and balls in play. And the immaculate inning is probably a bit more dependent on skill. With the economical inning, you're kind of dependent on the batter helping you out and swinging at a pitch and putting it in play, which is somewhat out of the pitcher's control. So when we do some cross-referencing here with the indispensable index match function in Excel, we get 10 pitchers, 10 guys in known baseball history have thrown both an economical and an efficient inning. Jimmy already mentioned Strasburg, so there are nine other 
others, most of them from recent years, as you would expect, because we have the pitch counts. The exception is Joe Eschger, who pitched in the 1910s and 20s, but evidently news accounts noted that he did both of these things. So we've got Joe Eschger, Pete Harnish, Andy Ashby, Jimmy Key, Rick Helling, Mike Messina, BJ Ryan, Randy Johnson, and Latroy Hawkins. That's an interesting mix of guys. You've got a couple Hall of Famers in Johnson and Messina. You've got some more mediocre pitchers, but all pitchers who were fairly long-lasting and good at some point in their careers. So they pitched a lot of innings for the most part, gave them more shots at recording the immaculate inning and economical inning, and obviously a bunch of guys who missed bats in that group. But it's a fun list because really these two achievements are kind of in conflict. The pitcher who gets the immaculate inning, that's someone who is missing bats, who is getting lots of whiffs, and is probably throwing more pitches because it takes more pitches on average to get a strikeout than it does to get an out on a ball in play, although obviously not if you're getting all your strikeouts on three pitches. But the immaculate inning favors the Randy Johnsons and the Steven Strasburgs and the BJ Ryans, guys who got strikeouts, whereas the economical inning favors guys who pitched to contact. And yet 10 pitchers in the annals of the game, obviously recorded history, there are probably others, but we'll never know about them. But of all of the thousands of pitchers who have pitched, these are the 10 that we know of. Very exclusive group. And it's getting easier to record the immaculate inning, but harder, I would guess, to record the economical inning. So I really like this club, the perfect inning club. Thanks for the question, Jimmy. So I wish I could end this episode as planned on the lighthearted notes of bat dogs and stat blasts, but the online baseball community got some sad news on Tuesday, and I want to tell you about the man that I and many others are mourning. This is sort of a strange and solitary job, a good job, but an unusual one, and people like me and Sam and Meg, who are lucky enough to do this thing full-time, we work from home, and whatever co-workers we have are typically people we interact with via Slack or Gchat or Twitter, maybe the occasional phone call. Of course, sometimes we meet up at conferences or the odd event, but it can be kind of a lonely life for part of the day. You know, my wife's at work. I'm here with my dog typing away. That's one of the reasons I value this podcast community so much. The emails from listeners and the Facebook group and the constants in my life from a professional perspective are people I just chat with throughout the day. And there are people I've been talking to in this community, people I worked with at BP and elsewhere on a daily or near daily basis now for about a decade, and a few of them I haven't met. Most of them I've at least talked to, but you develop strong bonds with these people whom you've never actually seen in person because you talk to them constantly and they're part of this world, and your problems are often the same problems they're facing and vice versa. And one of those constants in my life for the last decade or so, and someone who has been as helpful to me in my professional life as almost anyone, is Rob McEwen, who was the Director of Operations for Baseball Prospectus. And that title, Director of Operations, sounds like a can mean almost anything, and in Rob's case, it did. It meant almost anything and everything. He was involved in every aspect of baseball prospectus, and whether you know it or not, he probably had an impact on your life if you've been consuming any internet baseball content of a sabermetric slant over the last 10 years. Rob had a bit of a baseball background. He worked for Stats Inc. for a few years in the 90s, but then he went to other internet and tech companies until he wound up at a site called Baseball Daily Digest, which was run by Joe Hemrahi, and Joe later became the CEO and president of Baseball Prospectus, and Rob kind of came over with him, so he sort of entered BP's orbit in late 2008, which was also when I entered BP's orbit. He started writing there occasionally in the spring of 2009, and by 2010, he was not only writing some fantasy stuff for the site, but he was doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work, too. And by 2011, he had taken over most of the web 
website's operations. And a couple years later, Colin Wires left to join the Astros, and Rob took over Pakoda and most of the stat generation for the site, and he was just the go-to guy all the time that I was at BP, and ever since, he was the one who knew where everything was, because BP's backend was sort of a tangle of Byzantine databases and artifacts of the tenures of Keith Wolner and Clay Davenport and Colin, and Rob was the only one who knew where everything was. And if the site went down, you'd tell Rob, and he'd know exactly what to kick to get it started again. If a stat looked wonky, you'd tell Rob. He'd be able to dive into the code and figure out what was wrong. He was involved in building so many of the tools that are available at Baseball Prospectus. Various leaderboards and utilities and the team tracker and the score sheet draft aid. The list goes on and on. And Rob was not only the one who would put out fires, but he was endlessly helpful to anyone and everyone, and probably particularly me. Rob was a SQL wizard. He could query a database like no one I've ever known. And I'm somewhat notorious at Baseball Prospectus for sending a lot of stat requests. As I've mentioned many times, I'm an English major. I didn't enter this line of work with any great background in math or computer science or programming, and so I've had to rely on the kindness of others over the years to help answer the questions that I post. And Rob has been the one answering those questions more than anyone else. Part of my value as a writer, as a researcher, has been figuring out the right questions to ask, and that's nice, but it doesn't go a long way without being able to dig up the answers, and sometimes that's beyond my abilities, but it was almost never beyond Rob's. Right up until last month, in fact, I wrote about Mike Trout and the Angels and how the Angels have hovered around 500 over the past few years, and I wanted to know which teams in history have stayed the closest to 500 the longest. I think I mentioned that on this podcast, too. That was a stat request I sent Rob, and I knew he'd have no trouble with it, and he didn't. And at times I felt bad about bugging Rob with these things, especially after I left Baseball Prospectus and he had no real obligation to help me with anything. And I tried to spare him when I could, but there were times I knew that if I wanted to answer a question, there was no way I could do it without Rob. And he was tireless and endlessly patient and would always respond to requests. And sometimes he would say, I'm swamped and I'm fielding a dozen requests and this is going wrong and that's going wrong and I just can't possibly get to this anytime soon. But nine times out of ten after he said that and I said, okay, don't worry about it. He would get around to it after all, and he would send me the answer and he would say, actually, this didn't take nearly as long as I thought it would because he was that good. And I was so happy the odd time when I could help him with something. Maybe he'd asked for my opinion, or I'd report a bug that I'd found on the site, or something I had asked him to help search for me, helped him uncover some other issue that he was able to fix. I felt like I was working off my debt a little bit, but I knew I would never work it all off because I was so deeply in his debt, so dependent on him. And in In fact, when I left Baseball Prospectus for Grantland, one of the things that I fretted about was losing access to Rob because he was such an integral part of my process. And actually, one of the reasons why it was important to me to keep doing this podcast, which of course was started at Baseball Prospectus, was so that I could maintain some connection to the site and have some reason to keep sending stat requests to Rob. Because when I got to Grantland and I started sending stat requests to ESPN Stats and Info, I was somewhat shocked to learn that there were many requests that would have been a cakewalk for Rob that when I sent to ESPN, the biggest sports media company there is, no one there would know how to answer them or no one would have the data that was needed to answer them. And so I would end up asking Rob anyway, even though I'd left. And I told him at the time, if you wanted to go to ESPN, you could be running that place because you can answer questions that this entire department is having trouble answering. And it wasn't just that Rob could answer any question, although he could. I almost never stumped him. If I did, it was just because the data 
data didn't exist, not because he couldn't query it. But it was more than that. It's very valuable to find someone who can answer questions, but he would also make the questions better. He would see how your question could be improved, how maybe you were overlooking something that would affect the answer, and he would talk it through with you and say, well, have you considered this, and what about that? And these results might not look the way that you want them to because of X and Y, and then you would craft the query together. And I developed a reputation often for sending these stat requests, and then after I got the results saying one more thing, and often one more thing would turn out to be two or three more things, and I was worried about whether I was a pain, whether Rob wished I would go away and leave him alone, but he told me that he enjoyed working with me, and others have told me that he enjoyed working with me because he liked the questions I asked, and I would be very curious about them, and he would get curious about them, and often they were sort of meaty topics, and he was excited to contribute to that research. And I really think that if you did an audit on all of my baseball writing from the past decade, you would probably find at the bottom of 20% of those articles, thanks to Rob McEwen of Baseball Prospectus for research assistance. There were many articles I've written that wouldn't have been as good without Rob's input. There were others that I might not have even attempted to write without knowing that Rob could supply whatever I wanted. And it's not just me. I think I've probably been the one who's pestered him with the most stat requests, but he was a resource for the entire staff at Baseball Prospectus, for people who left BP and went on to other sites and would still send stat requests, and he was always happy to help if he had the time, and he always seemed to make the time, even if he didn't have it. And he was always generous when it came to trying to impart the skills that he had to others. Many of the stat people that he worked with, and in some cases tutored at Baseball Prospectus, have gone on to work for teams. People like Bradley Ankrum and Andrew Koo, who are with the Rangers now, and of course Colin with the Astros, and Dan Turkenkoff with the Brewers, and he had an impact on all of them. And if you've used Baseball Prospectus, if you've read anything at the site over the past decade, it's almost certain that Rob had a hand in some of those things. Even when we started Effectively Wild, Rob was the one who submitted the podcast to iTunes and tinkered with the RSS feed and handled all of those things. I don't know if he knew anything about it, but we asked him to help, and of course he did. And you may not know the name Rob McEwen if you haven't been reading to the bottom of all of my articles and seeing me thank him, because as far as I could tell, he had no interest in getting credit. He certainly didn't seek the attention. I have no idea whether he ever looked at my articles to make sure that I had acknowledged him. He certainly never said so if he did. He was in it entirely to get to the answer and to help someone with whatever they were doing. And he was so, so good at it. Sometimes I would see the queries he wrote, and they seemed to go on for dozens, hundreds of lines. And I would just marvel at how he had written it and how quickly he had done it and how clever he was at answering questions that seemed so difficult to tease out the truth of. And the reason I mentioned at the beginning of this little tribute that a lot of people who we haven't met in person come to play a big role in our lives is that Rob was that person for many of us in this little world. I never met Rob. I talked to him on a few conference calls, but other than that, it was text only, and it was so much text. I just searched my email for his email address, and I found more than 5,000 threads that I was on with Rob, whether emails or G-chats. And to my knowledge, no one at Baseball Prospectus ever met him in person. Even people who lived in some proximity to him in the Chicago area never met him. He was a, a private person. He certainly could have gone on to work for a bigger company or for a team, but I I think he valued being able to keep to himself the way that he could at BP, and so he was something of a a mystery man in that respect, and yet you felt like he was a constant presence, like you were interacting with him all the time because you were in one way or another, and people sometimes say that I don't sleep, and I thought Rob didn't sleep. Really, I think he did sleep, but he slept at odd times, as I tend to do, 
to. And so there was many a night or many an early morning when I would look at my Gchat list of contacts at 3 a.m. or some other ungodly hour, and the only green dot signifying that someone else was available and active was Rob McEwen. And there were many nights when we chatted about something or other, maybe some stat request I had sent him, but often just baseball or something else, and we kind of kept each other company. It's one of those things where even though I never met the man, it's incomprehensible to me that I won't be able to talk to him again, because he's been there for as long as I've been doing this, and even to the end, he wasn't very forthcoming about his personal life, and I don't think anyone knew the severity of the health issue he was facing, and so it's come as a shock to many of us that he is gone, but he's been an unsung hero for so long, and he's had a huge impact on a lot of us in this line of work. If you've enjoyed anything that I've written over the years, there's a very good chance that Rob McEwen made it better. If you've read almost any BP research over the past decade, that is certainly true. So my best to any family or friends in his life who probably knew Rob in a different way than we did, but even though the way we knew him was somewhat unusual, he meant so much to us, and he will be greatly, greatly missed. So sadly, for the last time, thanks to Rob McEwen for research assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Most listeners I've heard from seem to like it. It is right up your alley if you like this podcast. And if you like the book, please leave a review and tell the world on Amazon and Goodreads or anywhere else you feel like expressing a public opinion. You can also support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already pledged their support and earned themselves access to some perks by giving some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going. Patrick Emery, Zachary Ellenthal, Ken Hui, Brian Beck, and Paul Formicelli. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And Meg and I will be back with one more episode this week, so we will talk to you soon. 